Hello, and welcome to an episode of Cat the Baker. I'm going to continue to talk about Peru because there's so much that happened. I did a lot. So, <laughs> I'm not saying I have to go through every single day, roughly. And then also, if I don't change the topic to Magic Mike, I'm sure I'll get more covered. I wanted to continue the trip to Peru because this part of the trip, we flew to Cusco, Jose and I. But first of all, to get to the airport, we had to take a crazy bus. Well, there's public buses and then other public buses. We took an other public bus, which means that you tell them where you want to go when you get in, and then you give them a small amount of money or however much money. They swerve through traffic. It's not safe driving. Let's just put it that way. So we took one of those buses, and at first Jose was worried to take me on one of those buses, and he asked me, he's like, are you sure it's gonna be okay? You know, are you, you feel okay with it? Cause it's like rough driving. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. So <laughs> we took a crazy bus, that's what I wrote in my journal, took crazy bus, and we made it to the airport. You know what was weird is, when you go to the airport here, you go through security, you know, you, you take off your shoes, you can't have water, and you take off all your layers of jackets and cardigans and what have you. You take off everything, basically. And basically you go through naked. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> when when I was in Peru, we went to the airport and I said to Jose, I'm like, oh my God, I have a water bottle. I have to drink it. He's like, no, they don't care. They don't care. I'm like, what do you mean they don't care? He's like, no, just just leave it. You don't have to drink the water. You can just go through with the water. I'm like, okay. I'm like, do I have to take my shoes off? And they're like, no, they don't care. <laughs> He's like, you're not in the airport in the U.S. You're in Peru. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, so I just showed them my ticket and my passport. And yeah, they didn't care about the water. They didn't care about the shoes. But I had a watch. So they wanted me to take off the watch. So we go through. There's this, what is it called? It was, um, was kind of like a fast food place but it was really good they had really good sandwiches it was peruvian fast food but it was really good there were these sandwiches and you could get different styles of meat on it but it was still early and i didn't feel like having this huge amount of meat but it was roasted really well and soft and it tasted good but i had just been eating so much meat that i just couldn't do it so they made me a sandwich with like tomatoes and lettuce. And I think that's the only time I had like some vegetables <laughs> in like the two weeks other than carbs. So this place was called La Lucha Sanguchuria. Okay, and I, I hope I'm not butchering it. It was a sandwich place known in Peru and it happened to be at the airport. So I got a veggie sandwich with sweet potato fries and the normal dipping sauces they have. It's like a pepper like a yellow pepper dipping sauce and mayo. Like there's mayo everywhere. So for me, that was perfect because I prefer mayo over ketchup. So we go to the gate, which is right there. Like the airport's pretty small and especially the local side. You know, you don't have to walk far to get to the gate. So we're at the gate, we're waiting. We board and they go by boarding zone the same way here. It's almost like people don't care. 
just everybody lines up. Nobody really seemed to mind that much. <laughs> and so we get on the plane. I had a window seat. I get to my seat and there's a kid like in the seat. I'm like, Jose, they're in my seat. He talks for me because <laughs> he speaks Spanish. So he's saying, you know, I'm in that seat because they looked at me like they didn't want to move. There was a whole family with kids. So they had two rows or like three rows. It was like one family, maybe brother, maybe friend, but they had so many kids. I'm trying to sit down. Like I take my seat, the kid moves and he goes into an aisle in front of me. But then the wives are in front of me and they have the kids. There's more kids on the other side. And Jose was sitting across from me on the other side of the plane. So this family does not care that we're on a plane. Like the plane is about to take off. Everyone's sitting. The plane is like moving on the runway. And the mom gets up to get a bag. She gets out like snack food for the kid and like some sort of a toy because the kid is super loud and wailing you know people ask me oh why why don't you like children i'm like this is the reason like this right here is the reason the kid starts wailing the mom like puts him in the middle of the aisle like we're in the runway and flight attendant gets up you can't have the kid like in the aisle so the mom puts the kid on her lap and he's not even that young like he can walk around and I'm like they're doing everything wrong like the guy next to me he was on his phone like there's no airplane mode apparently that exists and or nobody cares or this family didn't care and I'm like what is going on so I look out the window like, now we're taking off the family finally settled but as soon as we're in the air even though the seatbelt light is on this family doesn't care, you know? So I'm looking out of the plane. I'm like, oh my God, like what is happening? Like as we're flying out of Lima, this is a two hour flight or an hour and a half, something like that. And we're flying over the mountains, like the Andes mountains. It's beautiful. Like it's so different than the Rocky mountains. Cause here obviously there's a lot of snow, just the way the mountains look are different. There the Andes mountains have a different like reddish tone, um, less trees, but it looked beautiful, just in a very different way. And the guy that's sitting next to me, he keeps leaning over, like literally he's leaning over me to look out the window. I'm like, dude, that's probably why he wanted his kid to sit in the window seat, even though he didn't have the window seat, you know, so he could keep looking over. It's He's almost ignoring that I'm sitting there, that someone is sitting there. He's leaning over that far. What the hell? <laughs> you're in my space. You know what I mean? Like you're in my space. I think sometimes I, I just have too many manners. Like I wish I could just be like, you're in my zone. You know what I mean? But I, I didn't say that, but I was obviously annoyed. And I would lean forward so that he didn't lean in my window. Meanwhile, as I lean forward, he leans behind me, like literally behind me, looking out the other window because I have kind of two windows. What the hell? You know, so I'm like leaning forward and backwards, forward and backwards. And I'm just super annoyed. Like he's just annoying me. <laughs> so we're basically competing for the window. And worst of all, he has bad breath. 
that makes it so much worse because he's in my zone. I don't know this person. And you have bad breath because now he's getting annoyed that I'm moving backwards and forwards to block the window. <laughs> so he's like breathing heavier. And, and I'm just like, oh my God, like I can't do this. So I take out my journal and I just start writing. And as I'm writing, I'm like, this man is annoying me. <laughs> like I have to re remember this moment. And as this is happening, the kid in front is like banging the trays. The other kid starts to cry. They're just super the worst, the worst family. And then they go through with snacks, like the flight attendants. And here you get nothing for free. Like this flight was literally like $29, super cheap, converted into dollars. They go through with snacks. The guy next to me, he's like, you know, I don't fully understand him, but he's like, I want something. So he orders like a sandwich. He gets a sandwich and then he has cash. They pay cash. And then he's like, hold on, let me get a Coke too. And then he pays cash. Like every everything he orders is separately. He doesn't say, oh, give me two sandwiches, two Cokes and, and a candy bar. No, he does every single transaction separately. So the flight attendants are looking annoyed because they're literally standing there almost the whole flight as he's ordering things constantly. Like I'm not even exaggerating. <laughs> it was so bad. And then on top of that, he keeps going on his phone and checking Facebook. I'm like, how is he doing this? Like, he's he's so not in airplane mode and he's spreading his legs. Ah, and there's nothing I hate more than a man next to me, a stranger spreading his legs like super far. So I keep like kind of hitting his leg with my leg, like move, you know? Anyway, as you can tell, I was super annoyed on this flight. And then to top it all off, his jeans still had tags on them. Like at one point he gets up and I see the tag on his jeans. Like, are you planning to return those jeans, sir? Like you don't want to take off your tags? And I'm like, oh my God, this, <laughs> this totally tops it off. And as I was writing, he was staring at me writing. Like he's trying to read what I'm writing. So I'm blocking with my hand, like what I'm writing at the same time moving forwards and backwards, blocking the windows, because he's like leaning forward, trying to see. I'm like, ah. And then his three kids are constantly touching and kicking things. As I was saying in the previous episode, when we landed, so now we're in Cusco and surrounded by mountains. As soon as we landed, people didn't even care about the light. You know what I mean? Like you cannot get up when the light is still on for the seatbelt. People didn't even care about that. As soon as we landed, like we're still moving. We're not fully standing. People are getting up. And I'm not even talking about some people. Every single person is getting up and squeezing into the aisle. And I'm like, what is happening? But they're not just standing there. They're also getting their bags. I'm like, this is crazy. No patience at all. But I've never experienced this to this extreme. And the thing is, if you don't get up, all the people behind you that are all now in the aisle will push past you or will try and get ahead of you. I'm like, there's nowhere to go. The plane is still closed. The door is closed. It doesn't matter. Every single person got up. You know, I had to get my bag. But after that, I'm like, no, like no one is getting ahead of me from now on. <laughs> so, 
I was on a mission. So I got up and this woman was about to pass me. I'm like, no. <laughs> like it annoyed me so much that now I'm taking charge. <laughs> so we leave the airport and I only had a backpack. We were there for five days, but within the five days, we were going to different places. So we arrive in Cusco, Jose's friend comes to pick us up and we go in a taxi and they drop me off at a hotel, which is like $20 a night. Like I drop my stuff out of the hotel and then we walk through the town center for a little bit and it's beautiful, like nothing like Lima. It's a lot smaller, even though there's still like a million people, which is small for there. But I mean, Aspen, there's 7,000 people. So this was a, still a very large town. You have mountains surrounding the whole area and you see all these houses built on the mountain. But compared to Lima, this was very clean. It was a clean town, you know, and not the same amount of cars. But in the town center, there's all these like different people selling like chicha morada, like the, the corn drink. They're selling choclo, which is they have a different kind of corn. It's a lot more starchy and less juicy, but it tastes really good. And they roll it in cheese and it's a lot more pale than our corn that we have here. It's kind of like white with a light tone of yellow, but it's just a lot more starchy. So they were selling that. They were selling like handmade tamales. And my favorite food, I think, is street food. Like I love just trying different things, you know, from all these different people. And then they also had this drink. It was called Amoliente. It's basically this drink. It's kind of thick. It has like almost a little gelatinous texture. It's kind of like jelly. I mean, it doesn't sound good, but it was. It was really good. It, had, it has a thicker texture in your, in your mouth, but it's called emoliente and it's actually really healthy. You have these different herbs that are grown in the area. Basically, they put the herbs in this like water, I want to say, and then they thicken it. So there's like flax in it and sometimes there's quinoa. That's what gives it that thickness, you know, so they put like... I don't know, 12 different herbs in there, and then they thicken it with flax or quinoa. And it's sort of warm, which is unexpected for me. And you can find emoliente all around Peru. It's normal, but it kind of, it settles your stomach. I don't know, it makes you feel good, you know? So we had that drink. We walked around the town center for a little bit to the main churches. It's like the square has like three churches around it, you know, and there's more churches just like a block away. But compared to Lima, I really liked the town. It was cleaner, it was more manageable for me. And then the next day, Jose had booked this whole tour. So we met with a tour guide that day and we paid for these tickets because we would be on the road, I guess the next three days. Because where we were going, we we're gonna go to Machu Picchu and then spend a whole day on this tour to see all these ancient Incan historical sites. So we had to meet with the tour guide. We got some ice cream and it was very interesting because it was made with milk, not cream, because cream is hard to find. Milk is hard to find, but the texture was more icy and lighter. So I could tell that it was 
milk. They have this really delicious fruit. It's called lukma and it has a natural kind of butterscotch flavor. It's a very starchy fruit. It's very yellow, like yellow golden in color on the inside. They use it to make a lot of desserts because it's naturally thicker. Then you fold it in and you can make a mousse easily. So they had this lukma tiramisu, which was delicious. Like the sponge was sweetened and then they had this lukma mousse like in between the layers. Like that was really good. And alfajores are everywhere. And you can tell they're made with margarine because they're a lot more crumbly. It tasted good. Everything you bake with margarine just has more of a film in your mouth. You know, you can tell the difference. I'm always eating pastries, so I can tell the difference if there's margarine or butter. And then we had the ice cream and there's all these different flavors, you know, like passion fruit and pineapple, like cherry moya, you know, all these local fruits that grow everywhere. They're readily available. You know, so you can make all these delicious ice cream flavors with them. So then I went back to the hotel and figured, okay, I'm gonna have a, like a good night of sleep. But as I went to bed and I was sleeping at like 2 a.m. or something crazy, like this was a hotel, it was a local hotel. It had like four different levels, four different floors, but the main entrance area you could see all the different floors, so it was open. So if anybody came in and talked a lot, you could basically hear it throughout the whole hotel. So I'm sleeping at 2 a.m. This group comes in super loud. It sounded like a class trip or something, like a school trip. And I'm like, God, you know, but they all go into their room. Okay, fine. <laughs> and then they decide to wake up at like 5.30 or 5 a.m., like super, super early. They only slept like a few hours, so they're having trouble waking them up. So they're knocking on the doors, you know, wake up, wake up, like in Spanish, and then they start laughing, and I was so annoyed. I was just super frustrated. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm up now. Like, I'm just like super awake. And this hotel room was fine, you know, it was $20 a night, like, I'm not expecting much here, and it was only just to sleep, and the bed was comfortable. It was fine, you know, it was just like a twin bed. The thing in Peru is the bathroom situation and the toilet situation was always a bit sketchy. It took forever for a shower to get warm or to have pressure. But luckily this shower had pressure and then there were leaks in the shower. So the water would come out through these leaks in the bathroom on the tile and I only had one towel and I needed this towel to dry off for me. Like they gave me a bar of soap a roll of toilet paper and one towel when I entered the room. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, if I needed to wash my hands, I had to use the bar of soap and I needed the bar of soap to shower. And I didn't have a towel for my feet. So any leakage that came through was just on the tile. And I'm like, okay, I guess this will just be wet. Like <laughs> it's not gonna air dry. But if I had to use the restroom throughout the night, I just have to beware, okay, this part of the floor is wet, so beware. And just throughout the trip, my last trip was Japan. And I know I talked a lot about the bathrooms because they were amazing. Like, <laughs> you know, when I came back to the US from Japan, I was sad when I saw the bathrooms in the US. But when I came from Peru and I came back to the US and I saw the bathrooms in the US and I was like, Oh my God, I'm so happy to see these bathrooms because, because throughout the trip in Peru, a lot of times you didn't even have a seat. Like it was just the straight up ceramic. 
And I'm like, um, am I supposed to sit on that? Like, I don't, <laughs> you know, so then you're hovering. And then a lot of the times there wasn't toilet paper. So I was constantly checking my pockets to see if I had something, you know, in my pockets. And sometimes if I ate something different, my body wouldn't react great. So I go to this public bathroom and you had to pay. Like you had to pay at the public bathrooms, like one sole, sometimes two, which I don't know, what is that? Like 20 cents, maybe less, but you had to pay. And then when you paid, they would give you a small amount of toilet paper. So I'm like, okay, I guess this is all I get. <laughs> and a receipt that you paid. So sometimes when I'd go to the bathroom, it didn't flush. I'm like, well, no, like, no. <laughs> like, you never knew what was gonna happen when you went to the bathroom in Peru. And if it was too quiet, I had issues going. Like I can't go if the bathroom is too quiet, you know? So I want like a loud bathroom because like I said, in Japan, you have buttons for like wildlife noises, birds chirping, and it was great. <laughs> but here, that was not the case. It was rough. It was a rough toilet situation. Sometimes I had to go so bad that it didn't matter if it was loud or quiet, you know what I mean? But anyway, in this hotel, the bathroom was fine. You know, it, it just leaked water. And then I got up early that day and Jose came to the hotel. The tour bus picked us up. It was like a van. It was a small van and maybe could hold up to like 12 people. I wasn't quite aware how long this tour day would be, you know, because Jose planned everything and he vaguely explained. But until you're actually on the bus, you don't realize how long this day is going to be. So everyone got picked up. Like we went throughout Cusco to pick all these people up. And the tour guide, he was very nice, you know, and he probably didn't expect to have one English speaking person. So most of the time he spoke Spanish and I can pick up certain things, but not when you're talking about like historical Incan information. So he'd randomly throw in an English word and I'm like, was that for me? Like, I don't know what he's saying because he just say random words. He wouldn't say sentences. And then if he spoke a little too much English to explain something to me, other people would be like, oh, we're Spanish, like speak Spanish. So they got annoyed if he paid too much attention to me. And I get it. I'm one person that speaks English among 11 people. But still, I still paid for the tour, you know, and I wasn't quite aware of everything that was being said. But then Jose would kind of fill me in. He didn't fill me in all the way because the tour guide speaking the whole time. So the first location we went to was Chinchero. It's an ancient Incan ruin. What's interesting about this is they have terraces. So they built everything on mountains. When water comes, like they had a whole canal system. They were one of the first people that started canals. So when the rain falls, the canal saves the water and then the water went throughout the terraces. So terraces, if you think of a mountain and it rains, the water goes down that mountain or soaks up in the soil, right? But if you have a lot of rain, it'll go down the mountain. So they built terraces, which is, how do you explain? It's kind of like large steps. 
where the sides are stone. So on top, they can grow and farm everything they need. And there's no flooding because of the canal system. And also there's no erosion. You know, so we went to this one place, Chinchero, where it was a first Incan site. It was interesting because throughout the day, we went to these different Incan locations and they all had something in common. So Incan people, all of their sites were set up for farming, for education and religion. Each location they had, it either most of the time honored the sun, the moon. They had separate quarters for boys and girls where they went to school, they learned. They'd almost be divided up into different areas of their society for what they were gonna learn, you know? So like farming for religion. And then each location had terraces so that they could grow what they needed. And it was pretty amazing to be in this original place that was set up so many years ago. The Incan society was there in the 1400s. So the fact that all these ruins are still like very solid, you know, they're built to last. So when the Spanish came, they came like mid 1500s, they basically took over and they used the Incan people for their, I don't want to say slaves, but you know, the Spanish took over and they would take over these sites. They would change their sites. So for instance, the Spanish came across very arrogant and especially as a tour guide was explaining, they wanted to leave the last mark on these sites. So for instance, the Spanish came and then they would build this chapel, this church on top of an Incan religious site. You know, they would change it and alter it so that basically the Spanish are saying, you know, they have the last word, like now this is theirs. All of the locations were altered in some way after the Spanish came, which is super sad. Like throughout the day, you kind of start to hate the Spanish because they totally messed up all the Incan sites in some way, even though they used the Incans to gain more knowledge, you know, about the planets, about the farming. They took advantage of them in every single way. And then Chinchero, it's built on the side of a mountain, but across from this mountain, there's another mountain where there's local people living. As it turns out, they're gonna build an airport in that area and where these local people are living, they're basically gonna tell them to move. Well, it's already been bought by like a Sheraton or something. I'm like, oh, that's kind of lame. The sad thing is that these historical sites, they're being changed because of also what the country's doing, like selling land and, and making money off of that. And then the local people basically have no say because all of these locations are very remote. Like we had to drive I want to say like an hour and a half just to get to this location. We had to drive a while. And Cusco is already in the mountains. So now we're going further into the mountains. So everything is really remote. And in these remote locations, you have like this little town and just these local people living off tourism, basically. And then they're selling, you know, tamales and all these little snacks. And they're just trying to make a living, you know, but you can definitely tell they're Highlands people. Like they're a lot shorter. They have these tall hats. They have 
clothing that they made themselves from llama fur. It's a very different way of living in the highlands. So they're gonna build this airport, which will make it easier to get to these locations. But in, of course, when you do that, you ruin the sites at the same time. But it will create more jobs for these local people. So there's pros and cons. The sad thing is though, that these historical sites, they're not guaranteed. It was kind of sad to see it. Like it was amazing to see this site, but it was sad to know, okay, this isn't gonna be the way it is now. This area is gonna change. Also what was interesting was that the canal system that was built, the stones fit each other perfectly. Like they were completely carved in a sense that like there was a little bit of mortar, I guess, to make them fit, but they fit each other perfectly. They would last forever, you know, and you could tell the old walls that the Incans built and then the new walls that the Spanish built. And the Spanish were just like putting it together sloppily, whereas the Incans built their walls perfectly. And they also built them inward a little bit because if earthquakes came, building it inward just at a slight angle made them sturdier so they wouldn't fall apart. And you clearly see that at all the historical sites. And the Incans also believed in falling in love with what you do, you know, as your job for your life. Like it's not your job. You fall in love with something that you're passionate about and you research and develop within that. It was like, how amazing is that to instill that, you know, it's such a early society. The next spot we went to with tour guide was Moray, M-O-R-A-Y. And that was maybe another 40 minutes drive in the van. So Moray are farming circles and they have multiple locations on this piece of land. But what was impressive about this is that Incans had terraces built in circles. So the same concept as they had on the mountains, this was still on a mountain, but it went far down from the mountain too. So the reason for that is that the total is 3,500 meters in elevation from the very bottom of the farming circles to the very top. And the reason they did this, it was about 11,500 feet high that you could grow anything in between this elevation from super cold temperatures to warmer temperatures. And they did it because it all happened right there for all the farmers in that region. They grew these things there and each region had a different patch on all the elevations so that basically they could all grow everything and everyone would have everything they needed. And then they would have a spot where they would collect the seeds. So if anything happened, they still had all the seeds to replant. So the way it would work is that usually the vegetables that could handle more cold, like corn, they would grow in the bottom, and then the leafy vegetables, they'd grow higher to the top. So then the next stop we drove to, and that was like another hour away. I mean, this was like a mega trip of all mega trips. And the next place was called Olonte Tambo. I hope I'm saying that right. This was one of my favorite locations. It had over 200 steps going up the side of a mountain with terraces. So again, they had the three factors, the teaching, the work part, the social aspect, and then the agricultural aspect. 
Ollantaytambo was built for the Temple of the Sun. So I guess it was the perfect spot where they could celebrate when the sun comes through for the solstice. They built this structure and then the sun would come through it over a mountain that was across from Ollantaytambo. So they built this whole structure and terraces basically just to worship the sun. And it was truly impressive. Like all these terraces went up. We we walked up all the steps. And of course, that's where I trip as well. And I still have some scabs. The way they carried all of those huge heavy rocks to the very top. And at the top, they had a shrine like just for the sun. The guide was saying how a group of people moved these rocks on wood and that's how they got them up like circular wood so the incans were just very spiritually advanced they believed in an afterlife they believed that life wasn't over when you died that was just half of it the other half is the death you know and the afterlife and in the end you're reborn so they believed that life was circular and not linear and then when the Spanish came, they took over this site for a fortress. And the reason the Incans picked these sites, they were all sites on different mountains. And the reason for that is all of these mountains had water. There's so many mountains in the area, but not all of them have water. So all of these sites where it was built, it all naturally had a lot of water. And then across from Ale Tantambo was this mountain and they used that other mountain to put storage for food. So basically they had reserves built in this mountain, which was fascinating. And then across from this mountain, there was this rock and it looked as if it had a face in it, which the guy said was the last Inca in stone. And then they'd have runners and I believe they called them Shatskis. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Shatskis, I think. And, but they had runners and they were these high-trained athletes and they would run and get the storage. They would, like in Machu Picchu, run as communicators between the king and priests in the Incan tribe, as well as be runners to run to other Incan towns and bring them news if needed. So these runners were super important <laughs> and they were used everywhere. And then after that, we went to Maris which are salt mines. So they're these ancient salt mines and the water comes from this mountain and it comes out super salty because of just the minerals that's in the mountain. It's a natural slow river that's on the inside of it and it's one of the top purest pink salt places much like the Himalayas, like the Himalayan salt, the pink salt. So they have these salt mines and these different... I guess areas, you know, like they kind of built all these miniature walls within it and different baths. So the initial area, when the water comes in, that's the best salt, that's the highest point, And that's the white salt, like the fleur de sel. And then as it steps down for the different paths, you have different levels. So the next one is for the pink salt. And then the less pure one, is the one on the bottom and that's usually what they sell for bath salts which I bought like I ended up buying so many different salts I had six bags of salt because I needed a black salt which is a smoked salt 
I needed the pink salt. I needed the white salt. I needed the bath salts. So here I am getting all these different salts. And now I know my luggage is going to be super heavy flying back. But this river, they believe, is to be 1,500 years old. And it's pre-Incan. And the water flows out of the mountain salty naturally. But then the whole Incan civilization was around from 1,200 to 1,535. And this river coming out of the mountain was before that. The only thing is this salt doesn't have iodine in it. So then you need to make sure you get iodine from other foods, depending on how much salt you eat from Maris salt mines. So then we went to one of our last locations, which was like an hour and a half bus ride. Like it took so long and it was called Pisac or Pisach. I don't know, P-I-S-A-Q. So this was pretty cool because they had terraces built on a curve all the way down a mountain. And we were at the top of this mountain looking down. So it was really cool to see all the different terraces. And this was one of their religious locations. I mean, all of their locations had, like I said before, the farming aspect, the religious aspect, and the teaching aspect. Each location worshipped either the sun, moon, you know, they're very connected to the planets and the stars, even though they had a different solar system than we do today. But they were smart. You know, they didn't have any flooding. And now you look at all the towns and villages at the bottom of all these mountains, they constantly get flooded. So the Incans were just so much smarter than I feel like people are today and right after that. But what was amazing about this location is this is where they had all their tombs of all their leaders and all their loved ones. So, like I said, they believed in afterlife and the life was not linear and that after you died, this second part of your life started. They would leave food and drink at the tombs, which were kind of outside and they were dug into the mountainside when they believe that death is just as important as the life. So they would only mummify the leaders, but all dead, after you passed away, you would be put in a fetal position, which now they can tell the difference between who was buried as an Incan versus who was buried as a Spanish, like after the Incan period because the Incans would always put the bodies in a fetal position. A, it used up less space, and they believed being in a fetal position, that's the way you were born, so that's also the way you should be born into the second half of your life. Which was interesting, because when they found the fossils and the bones, they could see how they were in a fetal position. And the guide was saying how that it was believed that this was the location or, or one of the last locations that the Incans were brought down. Because this location, Pisac, is where they celebrate the afterlife. And that celebration is in November. And when the Spanish came in, they had been kind of watching the Incans. They came in on this day when they were at their weakest point, when they were celebrating. They weren't ready for a battle. And the Spanish came in, they started burning the tombs and they started killing the Incans with weapons, and they weren't ready, they didn't have weapons. The Spanish knew how to get to the Incans because they started burning the tombs, and the tombs were so holy to the Incans, and they were so spiritual. So that was probably the worst thing the Spanish could have done, 
This location was so beautiful because you could see all the circles built down the terrace. And then we went to this alpaca demonstration where the natives showed us how the alpaca wool was colored. So to get certain colors, they would do different things, either get the color from vegetables, like for example, with beets. But there was this one demonstration where we were shown how there were these tiny bugs on the cacti. And you take the bug and you squash it and it gives you this vibrant red dye color. So they used all the colors of nature on their wool. Everything was made by hand. And there was this other root and it was a natural soap. And they used it to wash the alpaca after the alpaca was shorn. And then they would wash the wool with this natural root, which was a soap. Then they had all these shops with clothing from alpaca and hats and things like that. And it was after that that we went to the silver shop. So usual silver, it has 925 written on it, which means that something is real silver. But this silver shop had 950 written on it. The quality of the silver was much better and it's from the area there. And they demonstrated to us how all the stones were put in by hand and then polished. So it was this beautiful jewelry store used with all the silver from the area and natural stones like turquoise and things like that. And it was after that that we got back to Cusco. We went out for pizza with a friend, but it wasn't traditional pizza. You know, everywhere has different pizza, right? Like you've got New York pizza, you've got Chicago pizza, and that's just within one country. And then of course there's real Italian pizza and things like that. But there it was super, super flat. It was almost like in Switzerland you can get, it's called Flammkuchen. It's an Alsatian pizza. It's very, very thin. And there you have it with cream. There's a thin layer of cream and then cheeses on top. I think two different cheeses, three maybe but they're usually like Swiss and French cheeses. But here, it was the same super, super thin crust. And then you had a tomato sauce and they put veggies on and meats and cheeses. It was good. The whole thing was just very, very thin. And then again, you had mayo to dip it in. Like everything was always with mayo and this pepper sauce. But it was such a long day. We were so tired. And then the next day, we got up early and we made our way to Aguas Calientes, which is the town right outside of Machu Picchu. So we drove in this minivan up through the mountains, 1,400 meters up, and then down. It was like through fog, rain, sun, like every type of weather, because that's what happens when you go through these high elevations. But the ride was so beautiful. I mean, the curves on this road were pretty crazy. You could see everything, you know, and then looking down, it was like this, um, you were curving up. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> My mind is like mush after work and all these holiday things. But the road was sloping up. You know what I mean, right? winding up winding upward that's the that's the word 
you know, slowly up these roads in this minivan. There were other people in the minivan with us, all trying to get to Aguas Calientes. And some of these roads were like super sketchy. <laughs> like they're so sketchy. Jose kept saying, no, they're fine, they're safe. I don't know, some of them looked pretty crazy. And then when we were at the top, there was even snow. You know, like we went up that high. So we drove through this snowy area and then went back down all these roads in a zigzag formation. And the next thing I know, there's this waterfall and it's the water's just running through the road. So we just drive through it. Each time we hit that corner where the waterfall is, we have to drive through the road with water just going along the road. But it was a five hour van ride. Through half of it, I had to pee so badly that every bump was just horrible. We got to like this rest area where we stopped for about 10 minutes. There was this, I guess, outhouse, like three bathrooms in a row. It was just a toilet. You know, I paid to use it. It was just cardboard as walls. But I was so thankful <laughs> because it was such, it's such a horrible feeling when you have to go, you know, and, and you can't. Some of the roads that we drove through made me so nervous. So after the restroom break, I think it was probably another two hours, two and a half hours in the minivan. And there was a valley that we were driving through. On the bottom was a river. But it, it was so steep. The road was up in the cliffs and you look down and the river was right there. You know, but it wasn't like a nice kind of like incline, you know, or decline. It was, it was right there. And there was no railing. There was no like anything. If something happened, you could fall into the river but it made me so nervous. And later on, when I got back from Peru, like a couple weeks later, there was flooding along this road. And people actually couldn't get to Machu Picchu because ultimately, this van takes you across a bridge. And initially, you're up high from the river but then you slowly take roads that are winding down to this river it's a very wide bridge the river is very wide and it ended up flooding we went right before the rainy season and luckily we didn't have any rain when we were in Machu Picchu like the weather was perfect but a couple weeks later the rainy season started and this whole river started to flood and people couldn't get across the bridge so that would have sucked, like to drive five hours in this minivan through all these winding roads just to find out the bridge is flooded and you can't get across. I mean, and it's not just a small river. You know, you can't get across this any other way. Luckily, though, the minivan took us to the bridge, like right across, and then there was this buffet area. So all buses and minivans, they stopped there. But you could get like this lunch. In the minivan ride, the lunch was included. And I don't even remember it. It was an odd combination of things. But I was hungry, so we ate. And it was after that that we crossed another bridge and train tracks. So just the view was so vast and beautiful. You know, you had the river, 
the bridge, mountains everywhere, banana plants. It was a jungle, very tropical. So here we go. We start our journey to Agos Calientes. And you could take a train, but the train is kind of pricey and also it's super slow. So we decided that we would walk to Aguas Calientes, which is 10 kilometers. We took our backpack, because that's all we had, and walked along train tracks. And randomly, you'd have a sign, you know, to Machu Picchu and Aguas Calientes. So we knew we were in the right direction, but parts of it were kind of crazy, because sometimes the path would stop, and you would only have the train tracks. And you'd have these waterfalls that would go underneath the train tracks and you'd have to walk on these train tracks. You could see the waterfall underneath. It wasn't like covered or anything. So you had to step on the train tracks. You know, you could easily trip and like have some really bad accidents and like fall into the waterfall. So parts of it were actually really sketchy, but it was also really beautiful. There were these mountains accompanying us, jungles waterfalls like it was it was pretty amazing to do this hike and walk through so much beauty you know and then some people would take the train so we'd walk through these towns because the train tracks would lead you to some stops luckily we didn't have any rain there were clouds looming over us but otherwise the weather was good because this hike would be miserable with rain just because you're in the middle of nowhere and you're in jungle and you're walking on train tracks. And we also had to hurry up because it was starting to get dark and there were no lights or anything like that. So we had to keep a move on. Eventually a train would come and you'd have to go on the side of the train track. But these trains were old. I'm not sure how old, but it looked like maybe from the 70s or older. When they passed you, there was this thick cloud of smoke and it was very diesel smelling, like not environmentally friendly. They were vintage trains. That's a good word. We finally make it to Aguas Calientes, and I was so tired. You know, we get to the bottom of the town, and then everything's uphill. You have to walk up the side of the river. So there's this river and valley, and out of nowhere, there's this little town, which is Aguas Calientes. The river gets wider and wider, and you see the whole town. At this point, my back and shoulders are really hurting because my backpack is getting heavier and heavier. So we have to go uphill. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like I just want to get to the hotel. We walk through pretty much like half the town to get to the hotel. But we check in and I find out there's some hot springs, like uh, these baths. So I change and I decide to go because when I hear about hot springs anywhere, I have to go. But it wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to go kind of quick thing. It took a while because, first of all, you have to walk through the town to get to these springs. And then you have this walkway to get there. It takes about 10 minutes. So once you enter the springs, like you pay, you walk along this bridge because it goes through this whole valley area and there's a river below it. And you walk through all these walkways. And then finally, you get to these baths. And it was kind of strange because there are different baths. A couple are small, a couple are large. And then there's these kids playing everywhere. And you had to walk to the very top of the baths, walk through the whole area basically to get to the changing rooms. But the baths were packed. 
You could order cocktails if you wanted. The water wasn't cleaned. It was straight up hot springs water from the riverbed, like it was brown. I wasn't expecting that because I've been to hot springs and they're natural, but usually they're not like muddy, you know? So it was very different, which made me skeptical. Like, are these hot springs? <laughs> I changed and I went into the water. And at that point, my knees were sore, you know, from the hiking and just walking all day. So it was nice to be in this hot water, but how muddy it was and, and just the look of it wasn't too pleasing. But I was there maybe like an hour and a half. It was an odd vibe though at the hot springs because you'd have families, like kids playing, the moms would be in the baths with the kids. And then you'd have these men sitting on the side outside the baths, watching and drinking beer. This one guy basically asked me out in Spanish. I ignored him. It was an odd environment. It made me a little uncomfortable. My knee felt better afterwards. So I know it, was, it did something. Also, I kept having strange thoughts like, what if something's in the water? You can't see because it's so muddy. I don't know. I have a vivid imagination. We also had this included dinner. We had to go to this one restaurant and it gave you like a prefix meal, which wasn't anything special. I don't even remember really what it was. It was either like a protein with rice and beans. It was kind of basic, but it was included. So we used it. Today was the day that we finally went up to Machu Picchu. This was my favorite day of the whole trip. First of all, we stood in line to take the bus and everyone stands in line. So pretty much through the whole town, next to the river, you have this huge line of everybody showing their tickets and their passports and trying to get on this bus to get to Machu Picchu. It's probably about around a 40 minute drive and you drive through these winding roads. And as you're going up the mountain, you see all these other mountains opposite from you. And then you see the humidity in the air. All these mountains are covered with jungle. So everything's super green and misty. And you see the sun coming out, like it's gonna be a beautiful day. And it was. We had hired a guide. Her name was Elizabeth. She explained to us that this is the only Incan site that was never found by the Spanish. So everything is the way it was built. I mean, aside from like tourist paths. But, you know, nothing had been altered by the Spanish because they never found it. It was actually rediscovered in 1911 by an American archaeologist. And at the time, all the terraces were filled with trees and jungle. So this whole mountain is covered with terraces, but you couldn't see any of it because it was densely clustered. So originally there were silver and gold items there from the Incans. So the archeologist, he found everything. And then slowly in the next coming years, the jungle was trimmed in these areas to discover Machu Picchu. The archaeologist named it Machu Picchu. The meaning of Machu Picchu is old mountain. So the jungle was trimmed down. It was discovered that it's shaped like a condor. So when you're up above, you can see the outline of a condor, which represents the highest spirituality in the afterlife. And again, Machu Picchu had three sectors for farming, schooling, and religion. 
So you had a high priest, and he was up in the mountain called Wainapichu. And the Incan king had his house in the center of Machu Picchu. And if he needed advice or wanted to solve an issue, he would climb the 750 stone stairs up to Wainapichu, which he did, I guess if it was urgent enough, or he would also use the shaskis, which were the runners, and they would go up and down Wainapichu a few times a day if necessary. And then this is what we ended up going up. We went up to Wainapichu, which means Young Mountain, which are these narrow stone stairs. And, you know, part of that was very scary for me because the stairs got narrower and narrower and I was scared to look behind me because it went down so steeply. So the Incans built the empire mid-1200s to the 1500s and they started building Machu Picchu in the late 1300s. So with our guide, we went up to Picchu, and luckily, like we started early and luckily there were very few people. It was the perfect time to go. Because later on when we went down, there were so many people and they were waiting and, and it was just too much. So we went at the perfect time. We, we made it up all these steps, the stone steps. And originally they started out pretty wide, but you're winding up, constantly going uphill. Then they get narrower and narrower and there's no railing. Parts that are a bit sketchy, you have some rope that you can hold yourself up on and pull yourself up on. And luckily there was no rain because I feel like these steps would be very slippery in the rain. I'm fine with going up things. It's going down that gives me issues. So I was kind of afraid to go back down. We just keep going up and up and up and it doesn't stop. And then eventually at the very top, there are these terraces that start in the middle of nowhere. Like you're walking through jungle and you see all these other mountains. I mean, it's amazing. And then all of a sudden there are these tiny terraces. And again, we walk up more steps and we get to the very, very top, which is where the high priest lived. I ended up walking on all fours because the rocks, the steps were so, so steep that I was super nervous to look behind me. When I looked to the side, it, it was just wide open. There was nothing, like it was that steep. You know, they weren't just regular stairs. There was no railing, there was nothing. I'm just climbing up these stairs. So I was just super nervous. My only thought was just get to the top, get to the top. But then my next thought was, how am I gonna get down? And there's this little stone kind of house. It was crazy, and you could see the whole of Machu Picchu from above, and it is shaped like a condor, but you just see all this jungle in the mountains, and then all of a sudden, this tiny area, which is Machu Picchu. It was incredible. Like, honestly, going up to Picchu just made my whole trip. Machu Picchu itself was beautiful. Being in it was fascinating, but being up above and seeing the whole area from above was my favorite thing. So then we're right up on the edge of this platform. And again, there's no railings or anything. And then there's people right on the edge and I couldn't look. It just totally freaked me out. But the whole thing was so surreal. We just walked up all these stairs and you're looking down and the whole experience was surreal and it was so impressively beautiful. 
and the day was perfect. It was incredible. Like it took about 40 minutes to get up there. And at the very top where the high priest's house is, there was a moon temple to worship the moon. So we took pictures at the top and then we had to go back down, which was the part that freaked me out. I don't know, it was super scary. Like parts of it, I don't know, I was going backwards so I didn't have to see, you know, going forwards, going down. And then many people were coming up as we were going down. You just have the one path, you know, so you have to alternate with people coming up versus going down. We finally make it down to the bottom and we walk through the temple of the condor, which is where they sacrificed llamas. So the condors symbolize heightened spirituality into the afterlife. But they didn't sacrifice people. Elizabeth made that point. They sacrificed llamas. And then she brought up this point, which I thought was interesting. If Incans were alive today, or if they didn't get eradicated by the Spanish, how would today be different? Would there be more focus on the afterlife? Would we view it differently? But we were there probably, I want to say, four to five hours. It was an all-day thing. There were llamas like grazing on the grass throughout. You could see the old structures of the schools that were on site and they had quarters for girls and boys. You walked through the king's house. You know, he lived among the people, which was important to him, but the house was nothing fancy or anything, but it had a lot of rooms, whereas the regular people had like one room, but but they had canals. So there were bathrooms, which was very advanced for the time. And there was running water through the canals that were set up at Machu Picchu, the same as the other Incan sites. So all the rainwater was collected and this mountain that Machu Picchu was on, it's very rich in water. So when it rained, a lot of water was collected and it ran through these canals. And then when we left, instead of taking the bus back, you could go by foot and take more steps down. So there were stone steps to the very, very bottom, which we did. I must have been, I don't know, another 400 steps, like, or more. It was so much that all day we had just been walking up and down steps. Well, first of all, we went to this butterfly sanctuary, which is why we went by foot, because the bus wasn't going to stop there. And it was a sanctuary because of pollution, the butterflies weren't producing as much. So it was this whole area that basically collected butterfly samples. They would also have them hatch there to increase the population of butterflies in the area. And that's the area where monarch butterflies reproduce, but they had been reproducing less and less and less, you know, so they take them and they make sure that more monarch butterflies are hatched. So there's this whole area that was fenced in with netting. So when they're small, they fly around in that area. Eventually they let them out, but some of the butterflies there were huge. And it was super interesting because and I don't know the name of it, but if you looked at the wing from the side, it looked like a head of a rattlesnake. So it had these features on it so that predators wouldn't eat them. So we spent some time there and then walked back to Aguascalientes. And this whole time you have buses driving past you and the roads are dirt roads. 
And you even have this water truck that goes through these dirt roads and just pours water on it so that it gets less dusty. But it was just such a long day. And then we had to walk back to Aguas Calientes. And these buses are constantly passing you and dust is like going in your face. So when we got back, I was so happy. And right next to the hotel, there was a massage parlor. So I ended up getting a massage, which was like, I don't know, a $25 massage, which I was happy with. (laughs) And it was so good. It was so nice. It was an amazing day. The massage place was called Wonderful Hands, which I thought was appropriate. (laughs) We did an early morning trip of Machu Picchu, and we maybe got back to the hotel, I don't know, 4 p.m., something like that. And then we decided to just rest in the hotel and nap. And the next day was Halloween. And then that's when we left Machu Picchu and we took the train, which is called the Voyager, back to the bus to Cusco. Now, I'm not trying to gloss any of this over because I did a lot, yes, but I also have a lot to still talk about this trip. So I'm not trying to, you know, spread it out because I constantly have stories and things I want to talk about. But in the next coming days of this trip, we ended up going north. We made our way through sugarcane fields, which I would like to talk about more in depth because it was so shocking to me. Like I had seen documentaries on sugarcane. When you see it live and the impact it has on the community and me as a pastry chef dealing with sugar day in, day out, I mean, the amount of sugar we go through is crazy at work. And that's just one property. Imagine all these properties and the amounts of sugar they go through. But my point is, I want to talk about all the steps of sugar, which I found super interesting when I really did research on it. So there's more I want to talk about. I mean, of course there is. I don't just want to gloss over the trip. So I hope you're not bored with Peru. (laughs) Because we did a lot. We really did. And I have, you know, more funny stories to tell. I'm trying not to spread this throughout the next, like, you know, six months. I do want to say Happy New Year. Happy 2024. And I hope that my stories and my episodes have inspired or made you laugh or maybe made you cry in a positive, enlightening way, (laughs) if that's possible. But I will continue. So until next time. Thank you for listening to Katha Baker. I'm Chef KB.